Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content out on the internet. Uh, the best place to get access to that is to follow me on Twitter, which is at Focused Compound. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our manage money services, reach out to me at andrewredfocuscompound.com or go to Focus Compounding, our website, and click the Invest With Us tab uh, to get access to everything that we are doing on the money management side of things. Uh, we have a blog going all the way back to 2005 uh, on our homepage, www.focuscompound.com that you can get for free. Uh, all of the information is down below in the description. So Jeff, how was your long weekend? How was Memorial Day? Uh, good. Did you uh, spend some time, grill some burgers, grill some hot dogs, eat some watermelon, spend some time outside? Uh, I spent some time outside, yeah. You got a good tan going. It's good. I could tell you were outside. Yeah. Good, glad to hear it. Do you, uh, long weekends, do you just like look forward to them? Just time just to hang out, markets are closed, you know, get some good reading in? Uh, it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't actually keep to not working on weekends and working during the week. Um, the market being open or not doesn't matter that much to me. You do the transactions, so we don't really change that much what we're buying or selling. Um, so when the middle's buying something, then it goes on for weeks and I don't really do anything except see how much we've bought or something. Is there any difference between your Saturday and Sunday from Not Monday me, through no. Friday? Mm -mm. Yeah. No. That's good. I mean, you talk about creating a life for yourself or having a job or a career where it's more of a lifestyle, right? I mean, you're doing something mm -hmm. that you would be doing if you weren't getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. Glad to hear it. I think a lot of people listening are probably in the same boat. Um, anyway, so before we jump into our topic uh, for the day, we can uh, go over to the PowerPoint, talk a little bit about where we are in the world and in the market. SP 500 is up about 9% on the year. Today is May 31st, 2023. Uh, Ten-year yield is at three point six six percent. Crude oil sixty-eight dollars, and natural gas two dollars and thirty-three cents. And I wanted to bring this up. We've talked about Fang in the past and how the vast majority of the market movements, um, you know, are correlated or make up of you know those stocks. Well. You know, the one trillion market capitalization club is the new, uh, you know, group. So what's the acronym for that? Uh, what's wh what are people going to come up with? I'm not exactly sure, uh, but it makes up of it's made up of Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon and NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. And just five stocks account for 96 percent of the S&P 500s gains this year. Mm -hmm. So. Does that remind you much of like the Nifty 50 era? Does that remind you of, you know, anything? I mean, it's kind of crazy how just much uh, the market's gains, the S&P 500, right? So 
subtract five stocks and um you know the rest of them aren't driving the market's returns a year to date is that mm. kind of crazy to you that you know the vast majority of the market movements are made up of these five securities uh it happens at the end of bull markets a lot um it happened at the end part of the dot com it kept getting narrower and narrower um so people that were in more speculative or whatever tech stuff, smaller things lost a lot of money in that or sold that or moved on to other things. And then they all um, focus in on the same stuff. Um, it's a pretty common feature. We've talked a little bit about it, how like you can have bubbles in multiple things, like there's a bubble in something and then, then it somehow moves on to something else. So, you know, um, you'll have SPACs or whatever, but then there'll be something else that people can find with that. And then something else, you know, it, it tends to be, a particular period of time has a lot of that, not just um, whether it's just stocks of a certain kind or something like that. It it also could be speculation and lots of other things. Um, you have NVIDIA there, and that's probably the biggest in terms of year to date. I don't know. It probably went from a three, uh, probably close to $400 million market cap. I probably guess around $400 million to um, a trillion. You know, 400 billion. 400 billion to a trillion, yeah. And so, um, which is remarkable. And what's remarkable about that too is in terms of what it was earning in the past, we talked about Paramount, right? Which is, I think, enterprise value is $30 billion or something. Uh, they, they used to earn about the same amount, these two companies. Actually, in many ways, they, they were the, about, they're about the same size and stuff as of you know, a few years ago. Um, and uh, you have a stock that obviously is incredibly highly valued because of this scarcity idea of like people want to get in on a theme and there's not enough publicly traded stocks to participate in that. So, um, this is like about AI in people's minds and stuff. Um, the stock it, to give an idea of how overvalued this is, I would estimate it has to go up 10 to 15% a year, the business value for like 15 years or something for you to get to a level that would be in line with like what other stocks would do, you know? So mm -hmm. this thing has to outgrow other stocks by 10 to 15% a year just to, if it can do that, probably 15% a year for 15 years or something. If it could do that while you hold it, you might not lose more money in this than you would in other stocks. Like it has to, that's how much it has to get to just to be even with other stocks, right? It's already baked in that it's going to outperform other stocks as a business by something like 15% a year in terms of growth and stuff, which would be mm. remarkable if it did that. Um, on the other hand, the business isn't very big, right? So it's a trillion dollar market cap, but it's actually not a big business. And so um, like if you look at like revenue and gross profit, the things that would matter, it's not a big part of the economy or something. So it could grow pretty fast, you know, it could be, um, impressive that way, but yeah, it reminds me a lot of Cisco, you know, which got to a valuation like this. Yeah. 37 times revenue. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, so is that the new movement? It's going to be like the AI bubble, but it's crazy. Cause I mean, like these other companies are still in that basket. I mean, at what point are you like, maybe we're not in a bubble. I mean, rates have gone from zero to what they are today. And these stocks just haven't even skipped a beat. I mean, do you ever think about that? It's like, well, maybe I need to respect price action in that regard. Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, those companies do generate a ton of cash. 
NVIDIA, though, you're right. I mean, it's this isn't a big business that it's trading at a trillion dollar market cap. And then there's Amazon, which has, you know, we, we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And uh, last week we spoke about how you don't believe the returns going forward are going to be as good as they've been in the past. I mean, there's just no way they could be because they're just, uh, you know, outlank so much capital. Um, I don't know. It's almost like, oh, yeah, we're in a bubble. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we could say, oh, yeah, we we're in a bubble, too. Uh, mm -hmm. Three or four or five years ago, we could say, oh, we were in a bubble, too. And yeah. a lot of these companies were in this basket. I think of, I don't want to call some fund managers' names out, but, you know, there were a lot of prominent hedge funds that were short these baskets. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. even back in like 2012, 2013, and I think Apple was in there. Um, Alphabet was in there. Amazon was in there. And it's just continued to go up it seems you know it's yeah. just shorting's been up pretty it's been a loser's trade in this market really since 08 yeah um it it depends on how you define success right um if you will have been better to have not been in the market than to have been in the market right at the point that you decide oh it's too expensive it's a bubble and you can say, okay, I should get out, I should short, or I should do whatever. And then there's another point where you say I should get back in, and it's it's lower than what you said I should get out, or lower adjusting for the fact that you can you know hold cash and stuff. Um, then probably that's a good decision, you know. And so you won't be able to say that this is a top in something, but you know the the other thing is the overall market hasn't done that well. Um, you know, if you think about it, if you got out a while ago, and we're holding cash. Or went into other things. Um, you could have done pretty well. I mean, certainly if you, like, um, although shorting may not have done that well, certain long short things definitely have done well recently. I mean, since COVID, probably things like, um, I mean, if you take the extreme things that are, uh, we're not going to name fund manager names, but the extreme ones that are long certain things only, fintech, technology things, um, money losing things, stuff like that. Uh, and compare it to like David Einhorn or something. Einhorn okay, that's better. who I was thinking when I said the yeah. bubble basket. No. That's what yeah. I was thinking so, he, of. so he's, yeah, he's done better than that yeah. kind of thing. Um, now, if you compare an index or what you could do in certain other things versus uh, what some of these people are doing, um, yeah. I mean, the the issue with something like NVIDIA would I short NVIDIA if it if I was um, investing my own money or something? I, I don't know that you need to, right? Like, why do it? Mm. But yeah, it's very it's it's very difficult for it not to uh, lose money for people, and it's sad because it's a huge amount of money too. Like NVIDIA is going to be like you know a fund that brings in a lot of money and brings in a lot of people who never made money on NVIDIA. And now they're going to lose a lot of money on NVIDIA. Um, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's the same issue when we talk about Tesla or any of those things. You know, there's some people who are early to it and make a lot of money, but then most people get in later at it at a crazy price, and that's what we're talking about here. Um, so we'll see what happens with it, but there's just statistical problems with it, right? So it's four percent of GDP right now. So that's a bit of a problem. It's a little bit more than four percent of GDP. Um, that's a bit of an issue because when you start thinking about, okay, well, how big are you know, how big is advertising as a percent of GDP? How big is cloud computing as a percent of GDP? How big has it ever gotten? How big did oil get as a percent of GDP? Um, what was standard oil worth? What was, you know, um, 
you're now guessing that AI stuff is going to be very big, that it's all going to be done by NVIDIA and nobody else, that it's not going to be competitive. Um, you know, you run into a bunch of those problems. You, I mean, it has a good 10-year record now in terms of growth and everything, but that 10-year record is baked in for another 15 years or something just to get you to a normal sort of level. Um uh, also, it's very weird for me. I mean, I'm familiar with the company from a very long time ago. I mean, this, this company's been public for a very long time, and I've known what they've done and looked at the company and stuff for probably 30 years or something. Um, so it's odd that way, obviously, that it's not something that attract people to a, a new stock that came public, or something they'd never heard of, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you run out of targets eventually. You know, things aren't growing, so you have to keep finding other things, and the AI stuff is very exciting for people. Um I mean, this is all chat GPT, I think, that caused this um, because it made it in a way that people could, you know, similar to the Internet that way, something that they could interact with and have ideas about what that would mean for the future differently than something that seems distant from them and what they're doing, you know. Mm -hmm. What do you think about themes then, right? So you had said you think a lot of this growth we've seen in, in video is investors playing in air quotes, like a theme of AI. Mm -hmm. um, do you think investors just see this as like the only pure play AI situation? I mean, there are investors that mm -hmm. that will invest like with themes in mind. I mean, what are they looking for? Are yeah. they just saying, okay, I think the world is going to look like X, so therefore Y will be able to profit from it, and they're not thinking in terms of return on invested capital or free cash flow growth, yeah. I mean, anything like that? I mean, how do right. investors that you've, spoken with in the past when they say, oh, here's the theme, how do they typically play it? Yeah, they buy things based on what they think the world's going to look like in the future. Um, I mean, no one is buying this with any expectations about the numbers because you could try to run through the numbers and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, now, the future could be very different than the past, but you have to ask how different does it have to be? The answer is pretty different. Because you've got a few problems here, right? So one, you have to have a number that multiplies, you know, off of the the base year. So each year, you know, you have to say, okay, what's um, sales, gross profit, operating profit now? We have to multiply by a pretty big figure just to be able to get it to compound to a level that we need 10 or 15 years or whatever is the end of our period that we're looking at here to have value. Um so that we don't lose money on the multiple contraction because you're going to have huge multiple contraction no matter what. Even if you're positive on the stock, you have to assume that. So to offset that, you need to have earnings compound at a really high rate. Two, Buffett talked about this with Cisco. You have to make up for the amount of earnings you lack in the early years on the capital that you put in. The capital that the business earns on, you know, what the business earns on its own capital doesn't matter. It's what you're buying it at. So you're buying it today at a price that, let's say, is what, 200 times earnings? What is it? What, yep. Well, record earnings, though, were twice as high as today's earnings, right? This isn't peak earnings? Mm-hmm. Is that no, right? No, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So you're paying 100 times peak earnings, let's say. Let's say it doubles peak earnings going forward. We're paying 50 times, okay? If we could get to that level. And then the conversion is pretty good for earnings to free cash flow this company. So let's assume it's all in free cash flow. You're in 2%. Short-term money pays 5 right? You can leave money at the Fed at 5 So we have a 3% gap that you have to make up. 
in year one, right? And then you, so you have to add that in plus, then you have to also have the compounding of it into future years to make up for the part that we were just saying. Um, but it has both parts. It doesn't earn a sufficient earnings yield. And then it also has to grow really fast to get to the point where it would, um, I mean, this is pretty simple. There's a pretty simple way of doing this. It's about 10 times overvalued compared to what it should be in terms of like price to sales, price to earnings, things like that. It's roughly 10 times. We could go down. What's EV to EBITDA? All of these numbers are about 10 times too high, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So to get there in 10 years, we've said, you know, you could use rule 240. Basically, you're going to have to grow 20, 25% a year, about 24% a year to get there into about 10 years. Or to get there in 24 years, you have to grow about 10% a year. You know, it's not a perfect number, but to move one order of magnitude, you need to have something that two factors that together add up to that together multiply into about 240. So, you know, that's the issue that you have. Uh, the last 10 years, it did do something like 24% a year. You know, it achieved that. So if it does that for the next 10 years, then you would get to a level where you won't really lose money on this stock. Um, but you won't make money for the 10 years that you have. And you could have made 5% a year in cash right now. Now, maybe that won't continue to be an option. But so if it grows at about 25% a year for 10 years, at the end of that period, you should have a return of about 0% a year for 10 years. Uh, there's a slight earnings that you might get from free cash flow that maybe could come out of the business. Um, the multiple might not fully contract 90% down, although that's not unreasonable. A 90% contraction. I mean, probably at some point sentiment will change on the stock. People won't like it that much and it will contract by more than 90% at the bottom. Although on average it won't contract by 90%, but that's usually what happens. So all these numbers that we're seeing, 30 sometimes sales will be three times sales. 200 times PE will be 20 times PE. You know, all of that. So a 90% contraction to offset that, you do have to grow at close to 25% a year for 10 years. You can go longer. You could say 15 years you hold it and stuff. But that gets you to a zero return where what you normally want is closer to a 10% return or something. So, and that's assuming that, you know, it will grow by like 25% or something. Let's imagine it's only a 50, 50 chance it will grow by that much. Then you start to run into more problems. So, I mean, that's, that's also usually an issue with these things. The, the problem is not that the, you know, if this was Coca-Cola or some of the nifty 50, some of them, not others, and it gets really overvalued, but it has a really strong competitive position, then it's just the overvaluation that we're talking about. With a company like this, the question does become, is the future going to be brighter for them or worse? Because if you attract a lot of asset growth, then it could be worse. So what could happen is margins could get bad, overinvestment in the industry could happen if people really get excited about AI stuff, right? As opposed to um, situations where there's a lot of growth in it, but there's not. it's not possible for people to come in and compete with it. This, the issue is, can people raise money? Can people direct capital towards it? You know, that's the worry that you have. And that's what you a worry that you have with the giant tech companies, right? What if Microsoft, um, Facebook, Google decide that they want to spend lots of money on this stuff? What if they buy companies and do lots of things to compete, you know? Um, some of it can benefit you. You can partner up with some things and benefit from something supplying things. Some of it can be a competing uh, standard for some stuff, right? So it, a lot of times it, people just think it's the price, but it actually turns out to be both. Like when I talk about Microsoft is just the price. 
So, you know, going back 15 years, uh, 10, you know, 13 years or something, it just got very cheap after it had, it had been really expensive in 2000. Cisco was not just the price. Cisco has been a bad business performance for 20 some years because, uh, the, providing the infrastructure of the internet turned out not to be that great a business. There was a huge amount of overinvestment in the early years of the internet, and then there was too much, um, and results just—it's not—it hasn't been a growth company since then. So the, they got it wrong. I mean, I mentioned that. Like, if you took Cisco and a railroad in 2000, everyone thought Cisco had the bright future, the railroad had the bad future. It turned out that was wrong. If you don't know what the stock prices are. It's actually the reverse of that. The, the business climate would be better for the railroad over the next 25 years than for Cisco because there was no more competition going into railroads, right? And there was only competition going into internet. It, it turns out that we had vastly overbuilt internet stuff. Everyone had way too much inventory. Everyone had way too much everything. Um, and it took many years to, to fix that, you know? So, and that's with the internet turning out really better than a lot of people thought in terms of how quickly things were adopted, how quickly, you know, if you had said everyone would be streaming this and we'll have these smartphones and this and that, and that we had already done too much that way. So um, we'll see, but I, I don't see, it's it's a very hard to believe that this stock could do anything other than lose you money over 10 years or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think the people that are investing in this, I don't even want to say investing, or maybe they are thinking they are investing in it. It's almost like they're just playing the movement you know, the momentum, the beauty contest. I mean, do you really think they're planning to hold this for five or 10 years or think that, oh, it's going to generate free cash flow and then pay me a bunch of dividends or anything like that? I don't know people who think that way, but like I said, there's people who need to find something a lot of the times, right? So if you need to find something, there's maybe not enough stuff out there to find. Um... You know, uh, to some extent, it's who controls what money and where it goes that decides what goes up and down. So if people want to put money into something like ARK as a fund, it's going to drive up the prices of those kinds of things. If they want to put it into value things, it's going to drive up those. You know, um, it, you know, it's the same as with our fund, right? Like if people pulled out half of the fund, that would have a influence to lower the price of the stocks that we like because we'd be less likely to be buying those stocks that when that demand comes out of the market um, and the same amount of supplies there and stuff, those stocks would tend to drift down. If people doubled how much they invest in our fund, it would have the tendency to drive up the stocks that we like. So when you talk about like the nifty 50 and all of that, a lot of it is that was their strategy. Um, it's not necessarily that everyone adopted that, but they gave money to people who said this is a good strategy to buy only the best companies. Um, I don't know what most people do to, you know, like the people that we talk to are a small subset. Um, I know what the media covers and what people like to talk about. Uh, I know that people who don't invest and who talk to me cause they know I invest, uh, outside of this podcast and emails and people like that, but just in the world, are going to talk about NVIDIA. They will know what the stock is now. Just like they'll talk about crypto or something. Um, or the debt ceiling, right? They would know that there's things about that. But they don't know about lots of other things. And here, the, these are things that they will know about. Um, they all know about ChatGPT. I think that's what changed everything. Mm-hmm. I think only 10% of the population has interacted with ChatGPT, but that's still pretty... Um, I would say it's 
that's a lot of people considering it just came out a few months ago 10 percent of united states population or global population i forget what it was probably united states um have used it so um yeah the whole debt ceiling thing people have spoken to me as well about it i mean like family members and stuff and i'm like it's mm-hmm. in my eyes i mean right or wrong um america's you know constant use of debt whatever your uh, opinions are to that it's in my head like, as it relates to markets it's going to be a nothing burger like it's going to get passed and just like it has the past how many times they've done this and i don't know i just you know we talk about often uh deciphering between like you know the signal and the noise and the amount of noise that happens every single week in the wall street journal this will be another example where two or three or four months from now you could read the uh newspapers and the financial blogs that are talking about this as if the world is going to end and you'll be like wow that was a lot of energy focused on nothing i mean it's politics yeah and they had they prepared to write these articles right about what would happen and explaining and breaking down and then they don't get to do that um so that's that's also part of it right what Mm -hmm. you know what things are covered that way and what things people will click on and all of that so um I mean, yeah, you really I mean, th- I think- believe that the U.S. is going to like default and threaten their sovereignty to the rest of the world? Get out of here. Come on. Like, why are you even spending time thinking about it? Right or wrong, I'm not debating that, but I'm just saying like, yeah, they're going to raise it and life is going to go on. I mean, there'll be something else to complain about. Yeah, well, the thing is, how, how do I put this? Um I was, uh, I provided information for some articles sometimes. I wasn't allowed to be quoted. You know, I said, you can't quote me and stuff, but background for stuff. Um, Some reporters asked some things and stuff years ago. Uh, This happened more often when there were fewer bloggers and stuff. But one thing I realized very early with dealing with reporters, they don't really, they didn't really care if they could explain it honestly. Um, They cared if they could quote someone else and uh, cite it, right? So if, if they could cite something else, then they didn't have to worry about it. So if AP had said something, then they can cite that, and then that's the end of it, right? And so the thing about both the bank failures and the debt uh, ceiling stuff is that they can tell very scary stories, which are true. They can say, here's what would happen if this, you know, there's no guarantee. Those uninsured deposits are not guaranteed. There's no guarantee that they won't default on the bills on such and such a date. In fact, they can walk you through how exactly they could do that. It's unlikely that they would do that, but it's not unlikely because of some mechanism in place that would stop it. So they can walk through exactly how it would happen, you know. Um, so I think that that's very appealing to them as opposed to situations where they there's a lot of uncertainty about it, you know, and uh, of exactly what bad things would happen. They They like things that are very certain of exactly what the the risk would be so in these the percentage risk might be really really low right you know but they can describe exactly what would happen what happens when you default they can write an article about that what happens when the uninsured you know there's no law that's saying that the uninsured deposits will be covered even though the insured ones will be so what would happen in that scenario they don't really go back and say okay this has happened how many times and how many times does it not happen so what do we think is the probability that it wouldn't happen and also talk about okay what could then you know so instead it was like what's the exact day that it's going to run out what's the exact you know um so instead of how likely it is, like um, they make a big deal about 
like you know Hollywood had a writer strike and stuff, right? They make a big deal about that every time this happens. But it's actually a pretty high, you know, if they ask people who know in the in the industry and stuff, there's a pretty high likelihood that there'll be some sort of strike or something in those cases, right? Because the consequences aren't that severe for short strikes and things. It's a normal part of these labor things. Whereas the consequences are really severe for this sort of thing, and it's not that likely. But they don't tell you the, right, right, the probabilities of it. They just describe the scenario for you. So they, they don't, they're not that worried about how likely is something to actually happen. They're a lot more into how precise can I be about what would happen, how bad it would be or how good or whatever. How do you think about probabilities then? So like what odds or what probability would you put on, for example, them raising the debt ceiling? And then we just go back to complaining about something else, right? Like what probability would you put on the sun setting tonight? and the sun rising tomorrow. I mean, level mm -hmm. of confidence, 100% is anything 100%? Could a meteor or a black hole, we talked about black holes last <laughs> week, you know, somehow open up and suck the world in and consciousness is gone forever. I mean, when you think about conf or when you think about probabilities, how do you generally think about like, hey, is there anything that is a 100% certainty? Or right. There's almost, if you, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. There's almost nothing that's 100% certainty, right? But there could be some things that are pretty close. We can think of things like, you know, we've talked about standard deviations and things like that. Um, the The issue is usually the way people model it out is harder instead of as fuzzy as the real scenario is going to be. So like in the case of the debt ceiling, I would not put 100% probability that a specific bill would mature and be paid off on that exact date. That was somewhat risky. Um, so that there could be a failure for a period of a few days that something would happen with bills that were due at that exact moment. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I probably would be hesitant to write insurance that guaranteed a payment to someone under that scenario, even if they turned out to be made full a week later. Right. Um, because there could be some technical trigger of that, but that the whole world was going to collapse and the, the U S wasn't going to raise more debt in the future. Um, you know, that it would be locked out of markets and stuff and downgraded permanently and things. Uh, no, that's a lot less likely. That's more certain that that won't happen. But a technical default on something because of negotiating tactics and things, you know, that that was possible. So uh, where usually people would break it down into will it happen or won't it happen? I'd say it's a little more complicated than that. You can usually have more confidence in certain outcomes not being so bad for some things. Um... So, you know, uh, you, there's somewhat less confidence that one bank wouldn't fail in a way that wouldn't pay the uninsured at all. Um, although I've said that, uh, you know, that it's basically covered. If you look historically, it's always, that's the way it's been handled and everything. And Buffett said that it is possible like a Lehman type thing or whatever. It is possible that there's sometimes one that would happen you know, because of political arguing about it, because of people can't share um, accountability for it, of who makes the decision. Two people both are saying that I'm not going to make the decision. You have to, and, you know, technical things happen and, and something fails. Um, it's possible, but it's not possible that a hundred would fail that way. Right. And then people wouldn't do something about it. That it would be intentionally done for a long period of time or something. So that's why when we talk about that, we just say like, look, you just have to, if you're, a lot safer than most 
other banks, you won't be the first ones to fail. You don't have to worry that much about this because there's not going to be a huge number that failed that way. Um, so I'd have high confidence, much higher confidence in something like that than something else. But, you know, it, it depends. But like when people ask like nuclear war or something, I, I have much higher confidence that there wouldn't be a, um, the kind of prolonged nuclear exchange that people expect of um, responses from major powers back and forth. But I'd have very low confidence that that one um, uh, event would not happen, you know. So I'd, I had it would. There's a much higher probability of one um, weapon being used than I think people realize, but a much lower probability of a back and forth exchange, because um, people immediately assume that if that something like that would happen, that definitely if A happens, then B would happen, and C that people would actually follow orders and that they would actually carry out these strikes back and forth is just a lot less likely than people assume, but that one event might not happen because of a misunderstanding or something is probably more likely than people assume. So there's lots of cases that fall into that. And that's what I mean with like the technical default aspect of it. People may have, I think when the probability comes very close to a hundred percent, people are sometimes a little too confident in that. You want to be careful of that that that's a ninety-seven percent probability and not a ninety-nine and a half percent probability or something. And for major, major things like that, I think it's important. I I would be cautious about writing insurance that it, that there would not be a technical default or something. Um, but I wouldn't be cautious about not buying, uh, like Berkshire did, not buying debt that they think will be worth a lot. Um, you know that yields too much because it was close to the cliff. So. Um, those are two sort of different things, but like, cause you want to be paid that well for the insurance, you know? Got it. Cool. So speaking of Buffett, we can, uh, bring up what we've been talking about basically weekly here. He continues to buy more Occidental in the open market, uh, says he doesn't want to control the company, isn't interested in acquiring them, but is happy to own their shares and continue to buy more stock. Um, his form four came out yesterday um, and they bought more stock uh, between $58 and 30 cents and $58 and 85 cents. Looks like another 4 million and change shares, which is probably like what the $200 million range. Um, so he's continuing to buy Occidental Jeff. Do you think he's like sitting there and saying, Oh, the rig count is doing this and production is doing that. And I think, oil prices are going to be higher, you know, this year or next year and China's coming back on and demand and airlines are busy. I mean, do you think he's sitting there thinking that? I mean, we've talked a lot about the capital allocation aspect of this, but I'm sure he has some sort of macro view on oil prices. Uh, I don't know. The last two times he did this, inflation was high. So he may respond more to inflation than anything else. Inflation got a little bit high from the modern period in the, like, after 2003, before 2007 or something, like, right at the, actually, in terms of probably CPI and stuff, peaked, right, like, when the um, collapse happened in the financial markets, starting in, like, summer 2007 or something. Um, and then uh, he did it, you know, with the, the 70s um, inflation stuff. So, yeah. I mean, they're pretty cheap. You know, I mean, we, we looked at them and stuff. Um, U.S. oil companies, U.S. oil reserves and stuff are very attractive versus the kinds of returns you can get in the stock market. 
because these are pretty well real protected things. Now, like we said, these are shorter life assets than they used to be. So they're not as well protected. You have to reinvest in CapEx and stuff much sooner and find new oil and everything. But they have pretty good returns if you think about the fact that these are more real returns than in inflation-adjusted terms of other things. So, um, But yeah, getting pushed into that kind of stuff. A lot of businesses aren't that good with the plenty of inflation and everything, so it, he may be tempted to do that. He, he's done some inflation hedge things before, so uh, they haven't all worked out. But oil, um, some metals, things like that he's invested in, whether it was the 70s or later. How would you think about the valuation of Occidental? So a business that is tied so much to the price of oil, um, right? Has a enterprise value to free cash flow on QuickFS of six times. Um, they're buying back stock, I believe, paying a dividend as well. Yeah, they pay dividends. Um, how would you think about that, right? If you were to plug that in in that Excel model brain of yours, how would you typically be thinking about like, you know, what the valuation could be or what it's going to earn for you going forward when it's so tied to the price of oil? Well, you just have to accept that you could make a lot more money or lose a lot of money just based on the fluctuations in the price of oil that are fairly normal. Um, I think $70 a barrel real is what I would use. Um, however, I think that $30 a barrel is probably a normal sort of... Um, variation that you would expect year to year in the price in normal years. So, you know, like we're always talking about standard deviations and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if two out of every three years you end up with swings around $30, you know, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, but that that's just typical, which means that a range of 40 to a hundred dollars a barrel is, you know, just what you should expect when you invest in it. And actually it could be, bigger than that. Like over longer periods of time, there are going to be some extreme swings that are outside of that. But just business as usual, 40 to $100 a barrel is probably to be expected. Um, you shouldn't get overly worked up if it drops as low as 40 or rises as high as 100. Uh, and a lot of these businesses are so levered to the price that it would be a really good investment at 100 and really bad at 40. So that's unavoidable with these. I mean, they can hedge and stuff, but when you invest in them, it, it's not as predictable as some other businesses that way. They, they could lose money in some years and they could make a lot of money in some years and it's going to have to do with the fluctuations in the price. But, you know, theoretically, probability-wise, like we said, if you're have, doing some calculation of expected value, you should just plug in the number that you think is the correct price and then go with that. And so... You, you can't be so precise that you say, okay, how will it survive on $40 a barrel oil? You just say that could happen. I could lose money if that happens. Um, but I also have some probability of a hundred, you know, um, I have seen no reason to expect, you know, I just don't have evidence to say that there's more risk on the downside than on the upside or something. So you basically should just buy it on the price that you expect a normal level to be. And, um, that's how we look at companies like that. And I think that's probably the sort of thing that Buffett would look at. Um, the cap allocation is very important though, because, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis, it becomes more of an issue if it's not returned to you. It's easier to do the calculation if the money's returned to you or something. So, and buybacks function much the same way that, you know, as long as the stock is cheap, they're even better. So buybacks and dividends are helpful. Paying down debt, you can calculate what it's worth, but it's probably not worth doing it. 
Mm-hmm. They're all of them are doing it, but it's bad um, because you know you're you're taking out real assets that you have that Buffett obviously thinks is cheaper when it be buying the stocks, and you're using that to pay down nominal debt that you would have have out for a few years um, at you know real rates that are like nothing. So that's obviously not good, but. Um, the fact that they're not, most of these companies are not acquiring other companies and, um, doing a lot of CapEx and stuff. There's been some acquisitions, um, but they're, they're usually of smaller type companies that are in certain, you know, um, there was one couple billion dollar company, right? It wasn't that big, um, that was acquired recently, which falls in this sort of space. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit more of that kind of thing. But I think that was an all-shared deal, and I'd expect lots of that kind of thing because they can't agree on price. Why do you think there hasn't been as much CapEx spend in this cycle? Is that more so of like a political thing or? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they were burned badly, so you can't overlook that. People, I mean, why are people piling into NVIDIA? Because, you know, that stuff, every time there's been a dip in speculative things, it's Pick back up again, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, people didn't feel that way after 2000. I mean, at first they did, but by 2003, they, they didn't. I mean, if you live through that period, there was hope a few times and then there was not. So people were done with the internet and stuff by like 2003. But in 2000, 2001, they, they weren't. They thought this stuff was going to come back. But the fact that it never came back and kept going down is what bothered them. Um, you know, same thing here. Uh, so about 10 years ago or whatever, they they had a period that was bad in terms of debt and also in terms of how high prices got and came down. And some of that is also that, remember that we're talking only about oil, but a lot of these things also had meaningful natural gas. The natural gas thing was mm-hmm. even bigger. Um, so natural gas is cheap, I should point out. Oil is not, but natural gas is. So, you know, that's an interesting thing to think of. Everyone wants to be in, in oil now, um, but... It is worth mentioning that I don't think oil is particularly cheap, but natural gas is very cheap. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so th- that's one thing to keep in mind because all of these, almost every single company says they want to be more oily and stuff as part of their presentation. Why do you think the capital allocation ethos has changed, though? Is that because they have a bunch of capital and they aren't going to put it back into CapEx and they know that investors will reward them more if they return capital to um to investors it's possible but i don't really think so i think it's that it was so bad uh, a decade ago i think if they didn't go through that this wouldn't be happening now um and we'll see i mean the prices aren't crazy on oil if oil goes if oil goes to you know similar to so if we talk about like what oil was at the last peak going back 15 years whatever we're going back now um we'd be talking about like $200 a barrel oil right now, or, you know, there's different types of oil and stuff, but if we're talking Brent or something, we'd be, we'd be close to that. So, um, I think if oil went there and stayed there for a little while, we'd hear a change in the narrative and, and they start talking about, you know, um, uh, yeah, I, sure. There's been a change in terms of, if you're talking about like, has there been a change in terms of ESG and all that? Yeah. It's hard for me to evaluate that. There has been. I don't know how big that is, though. You know, we'll see. There are lags and things. You know, there 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 are big lags and things, and I think that's this thing with Nvidia that we're talking about, and it also could be the thing here. Um, 
it's not, it, it doesn't happen overnight, right? So we've had interest rates that are above that level now, and yet that's not consistent with where NVIDIA is, right? That wouldn't make sense to people why that would be happening. Um, and yet on the other side, you have these things, which, you know, some of these companies, their free cash flow yields and stuff are are good. Uh, they're taking a lot of, some of them are not really growing reserves, so you're getting all of it in earnings each year in cash in some way. Now they could go and buy things or pay off debt or whatever, but basically you're getting yields that are attractive on it. Um, and that makes them really cheap. But we don't know how that will work out. Um, they could be disliked because people think that prices are high now or things are going to go down. Obviously there's a possibility of a recession, which, would, which normally momentarily at least would have declines in um, oil prices and stuff. But um, I, I think a lot of people benefit from having some oil in their portfolio because it, it, it can do okay in inflation and more than recession or something What's really bad for stocks is a lot of inflation. Most companies that you own probably don't do that well in inflation. Like they can't get their returns on equity up. And so you now have overpriced stocks that are going to have poor returns on equity in real terms which is not good. So, you know, that, w- that would be pretty good. People don't want it, but I do think that both banks and uh, energy, both financials and energy, um, that are, like banks that just earn on interest rate spread and energy companies like oil companies in the United States and stuff could uh, be a diversifier for you. So when you find an attractive thing like that, it wouldn't be bad to buy that kind of thing because at least it's not similar to other stocks that might be overpriced and it might be in your portfolio. So if you can find something you like specifically that way, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, I, I think it helps. Yeah. When you think of like a normal price for oil, I mean, do you account for the fact that oil consumption worldwide is basically grown every single year uh, throughout both your and my life and is probably going to continue on in the future? I mean, even in the biggest like oil um like uh demand shock was in 2008 i think it was down like two percent uh in 2008 i mean it's it's basically grown every single year for the past i don't know 50 Mm -hmm. 60 years yeah i here's the thing um i'm different from everyone on this one i don't think that's particularly important Okay. I think oil prices could be a lot higher with way lower oil demand. We talked about the life of these assets and stuff. I've talked about how much excess production I believe OPEC really probably has and stuff. I think people may be overestimating how much uh, swing production you can have in lots of things. I think that if there's significant need for capital spending on things, if there's significant need to invest a lot, um, then you will have a situation where the price is going to reflect um, how much it costs to put on a little extra supply in those situations or to take it out. Um, It's similar to like return on capital when we talk about things. Everyone always talks about like, oh, how will this get better if demand doesn't go up for it? It's actually not the way they usually solve return on capital issue in an industry. Usually the industry shrinks. Mm -hmm. Like that's how you solve it. Um, Demand for coal goes up all the time. It wasn't good for the coal industry. Yeah. Um, it's not like their returns were higher from 1930 to 1970 or whatever when demand went up than from 1990 to today when it went down. Now, some went bankrupt and stuff. They took on debt and everything, and that's what can happen to to these companies. They can't adjust. It's a flexibility issue. I agree with that. But if you look at the asset life of a lot of these things, 
if demand declined, they could take out supply very quickly. You know, we could be talking about a situation where much of the company could be gone in f five years for some of these companies, some of the smaller ones that we're talking about and stuff. Um, all it would require them to do is just be willing not to put more money into the business. So, um, in terms of the oil consumption stuff, that's that's more complicated. I mean, I think it's very price driven, very very price driven. Uh, I think the United States would, if we had been able to find supplies of oil cheaply from the 1970s today, would be consuming a lot more oil. We'd have a different economy than we do. Um, it wasn't assumed that we could reduce uh, how much um, intensity of energy we had, but we did because the price changed. Uh, I think if it was very, very cheap, um, then you would just use a lot more of it. Um, and so they have all these things about global warming and everything, which brings in questions about what will happen. Um, I think it's hard to know. It depends on whether people are willing to channel capital into this sort of thing versus something else. And it also depends on interest rates for lots of the other things. Um, most alternatives, like all alternatives, to um, the system that we have set up in terms of high consumption of oil for energy purposes, for things like using as fuel in cars, is set up that doesn't require a lot of um, capital spending from this point on as compared to other methods that you could use, right? So let's say you want electric cars, and let's say that you want those electric cars to be powered by a grid that um, gets most of its power from things like wind and solar and stuff. Well, that's that's what is the price of commodities and what's the price of money, what's the price of time, because that's a huge amount of investment up front in a lot of CapEx, both for the um, cars, but also for um, building out all these plants for this stuff. Um, which is not required at the same level and for the same lifespan. These are very long-lived assets um, for the the dirty stuff that we're talking about now as opposed to that clean energy stuff. So we'll see. But I think very, you know, if you had very different real rates and stuff, we might have a totally different attitude about this. We've had, like, real rates at nothing for a long time, which is probably what's driven a lot of the green energy stuff. Well, we've talked about coal. We've talked about oil. we talked about ESG being a bit of a scam at higher interest rates why don't we just piss everybody off so what are your thoughts on nuclear and uranium as a alternative energy source there are uranium stocks as you know do you have any general yeah. thoughts on that you have a view on that no that's a complicated uranium's like silver and stuff with buffett it's a complicated issue so there's a few problems one there's plenty of supply that you can get from other sources um, it can just be expensive to bring it online and stuff. And so you would, and we don't know much about it in some places from where it comes from in the rest of the world. So I'm always very skeptical of that. Um, you can also repurpose some stuff. So for a very long time we had, um, and actually, uh, we mentioned a stock BWX technologies was big in yeah. this. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously since the cold war, it hadn't been necessary to do much mining and stuff of uranium because you could downblend um, for civilian purposes from things that have been weapons grade. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously there was a huge amount, you know, there, there just has, since the 1990s, there hasn't been need for new production net of uh, weapons programs around the world because they had more than enough. Um, and so they've, they've invested in some stuff to keep some things fresh and stuff in that. Um, but, 
basically it's lower than replacement level. So uh, that that was historically where a lot of it came from. And and then, you know, the question is, of course, some of these countries may not be that friendly to the United States and stuff that would have uranium. But um, it, it's, I, I mean, this is something that I don't expect to be big ever nuclear. Um, it's fascinating because it's obviously a technology that was very successful, very effective in what it did and was abandoned for various reasons. Um, including concern because of the extent to which it was used in weapons, right? That was a big part of it. So it was abandoned partially for that, partially for political, social reasons and stuff like that, but a lot for capital reasons that regulations were really high while you were building a plant. They changed while you're building it. It got very expensive, and then it was expensive to borrow the money and stuff. So nuclear, civilian nuclear power basically, you know, isn't built out anymore. And many interesting plans on that, never really were developed the way that they've been planned to and never operated at the sort of levels that they were supposed to and everything, not just in the United States, but like France experimented with some stuff that never, they never really operated at um, anywhere near what it was supposed to for a long time. And so you got that, but you also have space flight, right? I mean, we're flying around in chemical rockets, right? Which makes no sense when you have nuclear power, but we're, we won't use it. Because we, we won't, um, because agreements between the United States and, and Soviet Union and stuff and just general principles on that of not introducing nuclear stuff for space program things because of that. It was easier to do that deal and to work out those principles than to be able to go to these different planets and stuff, which would not be difficult if you use nuclear. So, you know, it, it's interesting that you can have a technology that seems that promising and then abandon it. But it can happen when it's something that's as worrying as that. Mm-hmm. to people so you know it, we'll see but i mean that can happen with the esg things too i mean you could have technologies that um that we're talking about whether it's you know it could be that coal is the cheapest way to provide power in this country in the united states and stuff this is not a big yeah, i mean if the united states wants to not have coal it can not have coal but um they can do that pretty quickly uh you know i mean if the government wants to work towards that if you know whatever i don't just mean that you expect the prices of things will be the same and it'll happen overnight but if that's an actual priority it's not difficult to achieve um in some other countries it is you know some developing countries and parts of the world um it would make a real dent in in their quality of life and stuff if they weren't able to produce um using certain kinds of power and stuff and it's more issue for them i think Got it. Well, we can continue on um, and talk a little bit about special uh, situations. I want to bring those up more on the podcast because, you know, it's interesting uh, to talk about things that are, um, you know, happening that are technically not correlated to the market. Um, There's, you know, corporate developments going on, corporate change. And we can talk about Seritage growth properties. Uh, The stock currently trades at $7.42. Uh, in their Q1 earnings report, they sold 27 assets for $291 million um, and has 15 assets without due diligence contingencies under contract for another $295 million. Um, and then in that PR from their earnings release, they said that they have four more assets with standard due diligence under contract for 
million. So I had come across their earnings report this weekend. I was just looking around at some different things. And then I think it was Tuesday, since Monday, uh, the market was closed, they issued a press release. So yesterday, uh, that they made a $200 million prepayment to Berkshire on uh, their loan with them, and uh, said that that will reduce total annual interest expense by about 14 million uh, per year. Uh, Management still thinks that they can get I believe 18 to $20 uh, per share uh, in a full liquidation. The stock, as I said, is at $7.42. Uh, it's got 22% short interest, which I thought was an interesting piece to this puzzle uh, because, you know, who knows what could happen with that. But, you know, 18 to $20, management hasn't haircutted that at all since uh, rates have gone up. And uh, so they still feel confident that and the liquidation continues on. So just curious if you have a view on that, because there's a pretty big spread between what they think and what the market currently thinks. Yeah, I followed this one a little bit. Um, The first thing we should mention is there's also preferred stock out. Yeah. Um, So there's Seritage, which is a large. uh, What's the market cap say? It's on Seritage, 400 some million. Do you have it there? Yeah, 425 million. 425, yeah. So I think we can go through the enterprise value a little bit here. This is my guess of what it looks like in terms of uh, the prices it trades at. So common stock, uh, the loans will be at you know phase. Um, but common stock, um, we just said, is going to be over 400 million. So you're in the 400, 450 million range with that. Um, the preferred is a pretty small issue. I think it's 2250 or something might be the price, you know, in that neighborhood. It's been around there. 2.8 million shares, I think, is my memory of how many preferred out. So let's say it's like 60 million or something in that neighborhood, right? So maybe 420 million or something on the stock, 60 million. We're under 500 million in the equity portion, right? And the common stock being seven times the size of the preferred. And then you have, if they pay that 200 million down, I believe that was 800 million less 200 million is 600 million, right? Yeah, so six hundred million. So you have somewhat less than five hundred million in. So we could kind of divide into three pieces, right? You got your senior piece here, which we just said is six hundred million. That's entitled to the first payments and stuff, right? You know that 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 will be the safest part of the structure here. Then behind that, you've got a small slice preferred. That's one tenth the size of the of the um of what they owe Berkshire Hathaway life insurance or whatever. Um, And then behind that, you've got the common stock, right? So saying that the, so let's say it's 1.1 billion or something in that neighborhood. So about two thirds of the way into that structure is where you have the preferred sitting, right? Because you got a little more than 60%. Let's say it's closer to 70%, you know, around two thirds, somewhere in that neighborhood is going to be your loan. And then in between that is this small slice of preferred, which is only going to be 5% or something of what we just talked about. And then behind that is going to be all your common stock. So while we talk about it, like, oh, if it doubles or if it halves from what these payouts are expected, right? A small change in the enterprise value is going to change the value of the stock by a lot more. Maybe not quite three times, but something like that. So if we say that there's a 10% decline or 10% better than expected performance in terms of the sale of these uh, land and buildings and everything, um, that's going to move the value of the common stock by almost three times that, let's say at least two and a half times. So, you know, a 10% move is a 25% move and that kind of thing, right? That's less true of things that are further up that we just talked about. So, um, 
certainly, I mean, the first thing is the preferred is interesting because the preferred basically is giving you a return of, let's say, 11 or 12% a year or something because you're getting your 7%, but then it's at a slight discount. Let's say it's at a, uh, maybe it's selling at, if I said $22 instead of 25 or something like that, you know, 25 is par. So maybe it's at 90 cents on the dollar or something. I don't know the exact price. Um, and uh, with that, you get a slightly higher yield. So maybe you get a seven and a half percent yield or something. Um, and then also if it takes, let's say two to three years for this to go through, we don't know how long it'll take, but let's assume that that should add another three and a half to five and a half percent or something, you know, it depends on exactly what you pick a little less than two years, a little more than three years, whatever. But in that neighborhood, you've got three to 5% or something. So if you're getting over 7%, let's say seven to 8%, you're getting three to 5%. You put those numbers together, you're getting in the neighborhood or depending on what day you buy the stock and stuff, 10 to 13%. If you think that's, if you're interested in the common, then you would think that the preferred is super safe because the preferred is going to get that money. Even if the common gets nothing, and this has been taken over in terms of running it, that running the sales process by someone who did the Luby's um, sale. Mm-hmm. And you, like you said, they put out numbers to say this was the original. Now they they haven't done they haven't updated those ranges. They've just not talked about it since then. So they said you know there's uncertainty about that and whatever. And they covered the ranges that you mentioned before about what the payouts might be, but not since then. So you got big upside in the stock, but maybe you have some certainty in the preferred. Um, but unless you have almost total certainty, I don't know. Do you want to buy something that is low double digit returns? Um, whereas with the common stock, you could have the possibility that you could double or something like you said. So you're saying that you would rather the common stock because there is less certainty, but you could basically make up for that to, you know, double or make your, uh, make a three or four bagger on your position. I think most people would want the common stock uh, if they were going to do this. Uh, the common stock's a lot more, a lot bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we said, I think it's like seven times the size in terms of price, but I also just think it has more volume on it. Um, you mentioned the shorting, which might also cause some volume stuff. Um, let me put it this way. I would not short the common and buy the preferred. Um, uh, now, I'm not recommending it, but obviously there's preferred out there if you want to be short something else and long something, but I definitely wouldn't recommend that. Um, So um, I would, I I would be more comfortable with the preferred probably, to be honest, Um, because I don't, there's a lot of debt. It's a mm-hmm. lot of debt and there's not a lot of assets over that debt. So we're going to be close to, does the common get anything? And if it gets something, what does it get? Um, even in situations in which let's say the common is worth double what it's trading at now, right? It's still only about half of what's going to be paid. I mean, it's a little bit more than half, but it's not a lot more than half of what is going left to be paid um, in terms of what they get for these assets. And it's quite a bit less than half of what these assets were not that long ago because they've already sold those down. So you're still dealing with a situation in which even a good outcome for the common, the common's only like half. Uh, we're, we're talking about the back half of the payout. So we're easily doubling the riskiness of this. Um, and then I assume that other people know a lot more about commercial real estate stuff than I do. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, being at the table and who's the patsy. Uh, Definitely 
I am in this case, right? So I know less than they do about this. I'm sure everyone in the stock knows more about commercial real estate, knows more about the situation and everything. It's not a deal breaker because you could be in a stock where their emotions get the better of them, whatever, and you can still be in something. There's plenty of cases where you're in something where the other people have more information than you, but you can make the more informed decision. Um, but it's a risk here. There's what tends to happen in most markets, right? Like this is that prices don't get moved fast enough. So, you know, we'll be talking about hotels or something, you and I, and say like, well, you know, they keep saying that, that you know the they're not seeing a change on the price of it or something interest rates are zero to five and they don't see a change yeah but they haven't sold any so they have seen a change in that volume disappeared in the market but the mark will come later right um we talked about that with timberland eventually that q and was sold and everything but same sort of thing the basically the market dries up so that's possible right those risks um that these things are going to get marked down a lot um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is I mentioned once that I've only once in my life lost money on a net net, all other cases I made money on a net net. Right. But it was a situation like this, that that's the thing to keep in mind is that it was a liquidation. So I don't think I would have lost money in a net net. That wasn't a liquidation. It was because it was a catalyst. It was liquidating. It was doing it that my standards were lower. And there is a question here to ask, is this just because it's an announced event catalyst that people are interested in it? Because is this better than Maui Land and Pineapple? Is this better than Alico? Um, the debt structure of Alico is pretty nice compared to this, right? Um, and then think about like, you know, just some other things about how, so what is the price structure. really versus, yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the price really versus, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, the other thing with this is we'll see how they're, you know, we've seen how they're doing it. But part of it also is that this stuff doesn't generate um, cash flow for them. And probably to get the best sales price, actually, they should put money into it, which they're, they're trying not to do and stuff. But it's not as good as owning a bunch of raw land, sure. right? I mean, that's part of the attraction of whether it's Alco or Maryland or Pineapple or something, is that if you can sell it to someone to develop it or something, that's fine. But actually, it holds its value pretty well and stuff between those times. Uh, these are more of a drag on you that way um, or a temptation. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I think I follow people who are in it and stuff um, or who've sold it. So there's suddenly been a lot of pessimism around it. It seems it's because rates have gone from nothing to what they are. I mean, mortgage rates are 7%. Yeah. But here's the thing the the preferred, I think traded as low as 13 or something and as high as 23 um, in the last year. Uh, again, small volume and stuff, but it's not like it's no volume. I think, you know, I don't know. I might trade 20, 30, 40,000 shares on some days. So that's plenty of volume. Um, uh, though very small versus heritage, uh, common, but it shouldn't, that shouldn't really happen that you should have the preferred near par now and the common have dropped from, I mean, wasn't this a $12 stock a little while ago? You look at uh, I mean, it's been down cheap before, but it this has happened this year that it got cheaper. Um, yeah, and the there last was a lot of pessimism before. Yeah, that's the part that I'm talking about. Yeah, so it's basically in the last year. 
we, you know, you can't pull up the preferred on the OTC markets reliably. There's almost no place to do it. You can pull up the preferred, but I can't get a good chart of the preferred versus the common. But I just should point out to people that shouldn't happen, right? I just read you the structure. The preferred is quite small. It's it's like I think it's sixty million, and you have that six hundred million dollar loan in front of it, and then you have this four hundred some million behind it. Um, I mean. Maybe people are threading that needle really narrowly and they're sure that the common is going to recover, but it's not going to recover near the 12, you know. Um, there's a lot for the the common to absorb of losses um, from the stock prices at now before uh, the preferred is impaired that way. But it is interesting to me that in the last year, the preferred used to trade at a much lower price. People were concerned on the preferred and it's not now. Which is, it's just interesting because if you think about it with the stock, um, the risk of getting nothing should be a big part of the price. Because uh, we, we talked about this, like just mathematically we could do this, you know, what's the chance that it can get? So, you know, when valuing these things in theory, what it's supposed to be is the frequency of that outcome, positive outcome, frequency of the negative outcome, right? We, we take on one side what event we think is going to happen and what, the magnitude of that is what's going to be the payout that we're going to get that way one way or the other. And then we do that on the other side. We compare the two and those are the possibilities, right? So when we do, um, and then you adjust for like time and stuff. So your opportunity cost, basically you compare it to other things, but put that aside for a second and pretend this was happening instantly. What, when they came out with their original range, what was that range for the payout possibility? I've been using around $20 a share, 18 to $20. Okay. 18 to $20. And what's today's price? $7 and 42 cents. Okay. $7 and 42 cents. So set, let's take $15. $15 is more than twice 742, right? So at that percentage, we'd be saying that's implying something close to that you're getting, um, a 50% chance of $0 and a 50% chance of $15. That's not exactly what it is because we talked about there's the time issues and then there's also obviously chances that you might get more than 15 and there's probably a lot of chance that you might get less than today's stock price but more than zero, right? People are probably counting on a lot more than zero or a high probability that you get something, especially because the way this is set up, like we said, with who they brought in and what they're doing, it just, it won't be pretty if they end up at zero. So that's kind of, if you think, you know, 740 is kind of close to a 50-50 chance of saying maybe it's 15, maybe it's zero. Um, I just don't know enough about what the properties would be worth and when they would sell them for that. They've sold some at cap rates that that would be a concern. That 15 doesn't seem realistic to me. But it depends on the order that they're selling them in. And also if things get better or worse. If things get really bad with the banks and a recession, they may have trouble winding this thing down. Right? Um, so that's an issue. Also, Berkshire might be happy to, you know, Berkshire might be willing to take uh, payment in some other form if they really can't even pay off the preferred. 
like because my memory now is that Berkshire is their only creditor, right? Really, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I mean, Buffett owned the stock personally, right? Mm-hmm. Before this, you remember? So, um, do you think he sold his personal stake? I don't know if he sold his personal stake or not. I guess we would know that because um, if he had crossed over 5% and stuff, we would know. Is he mixing business with pleasure? Um, well, he did. they did the investment in the loan after he owned it personally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was a surprise to me. Because normally he wouldn't buy it personally unless he knew that Berkshire couldn't be involved with it. But here there was enough debt. So that was the thing that was good about it for them. There mm-hmm. wasn't enough stock to buy up a lot of stock. So he thought the stock was too small for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so you know I think there's a, it's a much lower so when we compare this to like merger arbitrage deals and stuff there's a much lower probability that this works out um, there's a much higher probability that you make a lot of money now uh, I mean there's a much higher payoff potential here than you, we would normally ever have in a merger arbitrage thing but merger arbitrage um uh, we we talked to someone at the Willow Oak event who runs a website on merger arbitrage and things like that, and he went back and looked at two thousand some deals or something that he's done since the start of the website. And uh, for announced events for that stuff, the the deals closed about ninety five percent of the time. I think the worst calendar year, still ninety percent of the deals closed. A third of the deals that didn't close didn't close for um, antitrust issues. For regulatory so that gives you some idea of why like i say um spirit or something you know is interesting or when we talk about albertson's or we talk about activision remember that even when the probabilities are much worse than even when they're really really on bad cases where people say this is a very bad deal compared to the probability that a deal normally happens the deals happen at such high percentages that um you could be a lot less likely, right? I mean, you'd have to be 10 times less likely to close to be a 50-50 chance. The other thing is they don't drop that much in price. I mean, that's the whole point of the thing where I mentioned spirits. Spirits may not drop at all. Uh, Albertsons, it depends on how they do um, running the company. Um, It's a little more up in the air about, you know, their recent results were good, but like longer term, are they really that comparable to Kroger operationally and stuff? But same thing. They may not drop a lot. It's not a crazy price. Uh, like the price that they're trying to do, uh, the, the price at which Spirit trades and the price at which Albertsons trade are not on are not expensive at all versus peers in their industries. The price they're getting bought out at is higher, right? So the deal actually closes at a, if it closes, would be at a higher price. But, you know, the, the unaffected price or whatever could be really close to the price at which they trade. Um, so... I'm I'm saying, what if there's a, you know, so like say that, that Spirit is 10 times less likely to close than most mergers. Okay, that would be a 50% chance it closes. Say it's much worse than that. Say it's uh, half of that even, you know, that it, it's like the worst deal that you've seen that way, that there's an 80% chance it doesn't close. The 20% chance it closes is probably enough to make the stock worthwhile for you because mm-hmm. there's also things with paying them off and stuff. That's also part of the thing with the preferred is then you also get the 7% or whatever while you hold it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Is there a, a uh, liquidation yeah, so, that mm-hmm. you prefer? So like the net net, for example, the only net net that you've lost money on that was a liquidation. Right. 
you don't have to name the company, but what was the type of business? So it went into the financial crisis killed it. Yeah. So it, it had to liquidate inventory basically. And it couldn't do that during the financial crisis and it couldn't get financing. So, which could happen here. If we have something happen here that is the same as the financial crisis, the recovery for Seritage could be nothing for the common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if we have a recession that isn't like the financial crisis, you know, that would be different. But it's also fascinating because like, if you look at that stock, that stock dropped a while ago. Like we said, the preferred was up, the stock dropped a while ago, and then the stock wasn't as responsive as I'd expect to the uh, bank failures. Because, you know, commercial real estate stuff, it, you know, I mean, the buyers, probably, I, I don't know, but I would guess the buyers need commercial banking stuff that's sort of um, regional banking, local banking, um, to do these bigger deals for, for buying from Seritage, uh, these properties, right? It doesn't matter who Seritage is borrowing from and stuff and who deals of their size would be because they're doing so many deals like we talked about. So who's financing deals of a couple million, you know, like let's say they, they sold for, you know, um, what numbers did you have there? How many deals they did? And we can see that so we can get some idea of what I mean. Yeah. So I had, they sold 27 assets in Q1 for 291 million and has right. 15 assets without due diligence contingencies under contract for 295.6 million. Okay. So those are basically $10 million assets. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, but it's probably not the tiny bank locally. And it's probably not JP Morgan. You know, it's probably exactly the kinds of banks and stuff that we we're talking about failing the regional banks, the problems with that and whatever in each area that are doing that. You know, the relationship may be a lot bigger than 10 million that the bank has with someone, but the assets are probably, that's probably what we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the banks that we're talking about being in trouble and that people are worried about them pulling back on lending and stuff, this is what we're concerned about them pulling back on, I would think, is commercial real estate stuff um, like these. Uh, you know, and then the, the thing has to do with the cap rates. Some of the cap rates were really high before, uh, really low. Uh, the multiples were high. And then lately they had some, probably around the time you see that stock drop and stuff, that was concerning in terms of how high the cap rates were. So if you apply that to like later ones, then you have a bit of a problem. But I, I don't know if they are trying to sell the stuff that's harder to sell now or smaller, and then they end up more with their best properties later. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like more of that than I expected. It's not the order that I necessarily expected at first. I think their plan is to keep some of their top tier properties. So just get out of the ones that they don't like uh or they like the least. Right, but that's an interesting issue. Cuz if they do that, then that means those are larger assets that are harder to sell in individual sales. If they're good and they think they're going to sell them for a lot, that's fine, but it means that it depends more on individual sales of higher priced things at the end of the process. Mm -hmm. Which might be the most sensitive to interest rates, right? Um, so I, I don't know. It could be just that what we're seeing, it just has to do with what can sell and when mm. and how fast. And so bigger deals are more of a problem. Um, it's just interesting. Like you were talking about your net net, the net net that you lost money on. And mm -hmm. the reason I brought it up was right. 
we've talked about merger arbitrage and you had said that, hey, you know, like there's a difference between the Activision merger arb versus the Spirit one where if Activision doesn't go through, you wouldn't be as happy to hold it versus, well, yeah. if Spirit doesn't go through, then that's a situation you like because you'd be happy to hold it. And just this idea of like, from a liquidation per, uh, perspective, like the certainty versus what you can make more money on. Okay, well, if you're, a company is liquidating a stock portfolio, I would say that's probably much more of a certain outcome um, versus a company like MLP, for example, where if they decided they were going to liquidate the company, I mean, I'm sure you would make multiples more than what you would in a liquidation that is liquidating inventory or uh, a stock portfolio, right? And then just like, which one is better? I don't know if, if one's better. I think it's such a individual thing um, as it relates to, you know, the certainty versus how much more you can make in one situation versus the other. Yeah, I think Seritage and Activision are much more tied to financial conditions in terms of the risk or reward because the downside danger comes a lot from either a huge decline in the stock market, which would be bad for Activision, or a huge decline in um, the economy, you know, in real estate and banking and stuff, which would be a, the problem for Seritage. Absent something like that happening, I wouldn't be too worried about either one of them. If you could promise me that there'd be as much froth in the market um, in the future as there is now, uh, then I might be fine with the uh, Activision deal. There's enough possibility of something good happening there, and the stock would likely have a high multiple if it all fell apart. Um, but if things decline like they did in 2000 or 2008 or something in the stock market while Activision is trying to close this deal, then when it, it fails to close it, then it's going to be ugly um, because this is a high multiple stock. Uh, Spirit and Albertsons, I doesn't matter. I mean, I, I don't know that it matters for closing the deal. I doubt it matters that much. And they're much more insulated, Albertsons and Spirit, versus um, economic cycles and stock market cycles. It's very specific. But there's very strong reasons for why uh, the deals wouldn't happen. Very good reasons why the deals wouldn't happen in those cases. They're much more questionable in some of the other cases. I mean, the Activision thing is, you know, there's not much of a case for why the deal shouldn't be allowed. But... Um, so, so the odds that it would close might be a lot lower, but who cares if the probability, if the magnitude of loss is almost nothing on the other side, um, you know, and that's the risk here is just that the, the, the main thing I would say is that the pro the possibility that there's a large loss in Seritage is high, is high. I should say the, the size of the possible loss is high, not the probability that it will happen. Why? So what ones would I buy and stuff, right? Hunter Douglas, Cambria, right? Some of them, Cambria, for instance, it ended up being like 4% higher price that it was taken out at or something. It was like nothing. But I don't see the harm in that. It could have been even higher. There's nothing wrong with owning the stock otherwise. I mean, the stock would probably be higher than what it was then if you look at what happened with used car prices and things since that deal happened. Um, the thing that I would just be cautious about is remember what you own here. It... This is very much an event thing if it liquidates and you have to evaluate it as an event because I think people don't want to own this asset. I don't know that this asset is as... I don't think I would like this asset as much as Alico or, or um, Marilena Pineapple to be stuck with this. I don't think you want to be stuck with the Seritage properties. So, the, so you're doing it because it's an event, which is 
fine, but historically I'd say that's that's the trickiest way to do merger arbitrage and event-driven stuff and whatever. The easiest is I don't care that much if this event happens because if there wasn't an event happening, I'd be happy to own the stock. What you want here is I would like to be in Seritage even if they said tomorrow we're not going to liquidate, we're going to try to make this work out and start producing operating cash flow and stuff. If that was the case, then then I would like it better. But I may be biased because I valued this stock for a long time before the liquidation was planned and, you know, didn't like it. Looked at it and said, no, I don't, you know, I don't like it. I don't think that it's as cheap as people think and stuff. So that may be coloring my perception of it. Do you think you've made more money in your career investing in event type of situation? So you're not an event-driven investor, but I don't know, like if I think about it, I I'm going to change the definition of event driven for you and say, like, I think you've made a lot mm-hmm. of money in like the extreme um, type of situation. So like spinoffs, I'm just going to put that in the extreme yeah. bucket just for this chat. Right. Okay. But like, so extreme uh, certain spinoffs, uh, the Japanese net net situations, that was the result of an extreme situation. Other net nets, that's probably an extreme situation. We talked about frost with the Fed funds being uh, at an extreme uh, spot uh, relative to history. I don't know. Like sometimes I think about you as an investor. I mean, do you think even investing out of 08, right? Like finding those stocks at like FICO at, you know, six, seven, Mm -hmm. eight times earnings. uh, I just feel like the most amount of uh, IRR you've had in your careers come from situations that are just very extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we do spinoffs, net nets, um, arbitrage of some kind, all that stuff together. Yeah. I, I mean, returns have been better. My returns have been better in those things, annualized, no doubt. I don't know that I've made more money because I don't know that I've been able to invest as much money in that stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's more attractive. Yeah, the risk return is better and stuff. I mean, it's really hard to do what we tried to do every day, which is the market isn't undervalued. There's nothing special going on with this situation. Let's buy it. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that, that, you know, like if you could be in an index or you could be in these other deals that we're talking about, I think it'd be better being the other deals. I mean, for most people, I would suggest swap out some of your stocks and put these things in it. If you could handle it psychologically, I think most people can't handle it psychologically. So it's okay. Um, But maybe that's a sizing thing. I mean, maybe they don't have to put 20 or 25% of their portfolio in a situation like that. Maybe it could be because of, oh, you could make a ton on the upside because these are ripe for mispricing. Maybe it doesn't have to be a, a massive position. Maybe it could be a five or six, seven, 10, whatever that number is for you. Yeah, maybe. I, I find that that's not true for people. Um, you, you would think that maybe that would work that way, but the problem is... Um, the problem is that they don't like being wrong about situations that are not working out, right? And it's not being wrong. It, the idea is just because a deal doesn't go through or something doesn't mean you were wrong to buy it. Uh, and because it does go through doesn't mean you were right to buy it. Uh, same thing we talked about the preferred and the common and stuff. You could do a postmortem after this and decide, well, was I right or wrong or something? It's very possible that you could have a higher return in something that you would be wrong to buy based on the information that you had at the time, looking back on it and trying to analyze it and understand what 
the situation was. So uh, that's what you need to do. And some, you know, and what I mean is like the Cambria one, right? No one finds great joy out of making the 4% or something, but I think that was a very good decision from when we talked about that on the podcast to say, you know, people, you might want to buy this. Now there's like totally illiquid. We couldn't buy it because of laws and stuff in the UK basically is that it would make it unimportant to us as a fund because there's no way given the way that takeovers work in the UK that we could, um, do it in a way that makes sense. So it just wasn't considered, but, um, making that amount, whatever it was, let's say it was, you know, a few percent, um, I think actually it was a good bet and that making that couple percent and not having it go through frustrates most people, but you made the right bet and that's, you need to get the enjoyment out of doing that and, and understanding what the odds were of different things that could have fallen apart and ended up having to be a much higher bid or something. I made a lot of money in something doing that and no one, you know, and also the Japanese net nets, about a third of them, it was takeovers of the company that I made the money from. And in, you know, I bet on a situation in which the company was 70% controlled by insiders who were trying to take it private. And I got a higher bid from them. Uh, Japanese net nets, people said in Japan, they'll never be a, ta- you know, management will never buy out the company. It'll never go private, whatever it did. So, you know, you, yeah. I don't know. The, the the average person listening to this just is never going to do these deals because they don't, they don't like them. It frustrates them. Um, I don't know. But it's just an odds thing. I mean, you could be pretty wrong about a lot of things about these deals in some cases and make money, and you could be right about everything about the future of NVIDIA and lose money. It's... It's the the pricing of it, you know, the handicapping, like we said about, like like Munger talks about, you know, how much weight is is Nvidia, you know, as a horse, how much weight is it carrying in this race? Like I said, maybe you could find some people will argue it's ten percent. I, I think it's closer to fifteen. It has to do that just to kind of stay in place. When NACO spun off, it was about seven percent, you know, seven percent the other way, negative seven percent. That is the 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 intrinsic value could probably decay at about seven percent a year. And you'd be and you'd be at, at a battle break even or something, right? Like it had to actually go down in value probably over time while you owned it for this to happen because you know it'd be earning the opposite of what we said with Nvidia. It'd be earning a certain amount of money and it does something with it. It pays it out, buys back stock, does something. So eventually, that pile of cash would be offsetting the the decline, right? Um, you know, it's it's a big deal. So you could be twenty percent off in terms of you're in the thing that has the high expectations instead of the thing that has the low expectations. But look, NACO hasn't worked and NVIDIA has. So, and it could easily go up another 50% or something from where it is. Um, you mentioned there's 22% short interest. I don't know what that's all about. Obviously people could short this, but they could also be long other things in the rest of their portfolio. I think it's probably a way that people want to play the commercial real estate thing. I don't believe that it could be meaningfully because of people owning the preferred. So, mm-hmm. Because I thought about that, but I think it's risky. It doesn't make any sense to me to do that. Do you think to these be short, like the common and long the preferred? Do you think? Do you ever think about these event-driven things, like in terms of cycles? For example, like spinoffs, right? Uh, Greenblatt, the uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, really raked it in. He wrote the book on it and spinoffs haven't been as good as they historically were, oh, yeah. probably because so many people are, are focusing on them. Uh, you think about SPACs, for example, right? That was definitely a cycle that came through and boomed in, in uh, you know, 2020. And now SPACs have really calmed down. I mean, do you ever think about, I don't know, like even cycles from like your own strategy of like buying great companies at cheap mm-hmm. prices? I mean, we haven't found yeah. a FICO at eight, nine, 10 times earnings or a J&J snack yeah. foods at, you know, less than 12 mm-hmm. times earnings. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like maybe I should focus my attention on these other strategies that are, I don't want to say like working because then you're like having some sort of style drift, but just kind of incorporating these other things that are in cycle right now, if that's the right way to word it. Yeah. I, you get different opportunities at different times because the market's always adjusting. People are always adjusting, learning, um, over learning some things, you know, not necessarily that they're learning the correct lessons, but they could be right or wrong, but they're trying to adjust to what happened in the past. So as much as we talk about the green black book and everything, I don't think spinoffs are necessarily that great an opportunity normally that we've seen. I think merger arbitrage stuff recently is really the ones that we talked about is remarkably priced. I even think that the Seritage thing, as much as I've been saying, you know, there's possibilities here or whatever. I mean, the fact that the preferred trades where it does, the fact that the common trades where it does is pretty attractive versus the market. I mean, I, it's not what we do, but I, I wouldn't want, I would not mind being short the market and long Seritage common or short the market and long the preferred. I think that's very good. I think that's a smart idea. Um, you know, it could go wrong, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, COVID could happen or something again, but like if the market shoots up, okay, then it's probably a pretty good situation for, for selling the real estate and this thing could double then, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, preferred, sure. I mean, um, you're only going to get the return that you're going to get. So you could have a problem there if the market really goes up. But yeah, as long as, yes, these are more attractive. All the things we talked about are more attractive than the market. Activision, Albertsons, um, Spirit, this. For for a bunch of different reasons. But like standard reasons, like they're value things, so they're cheaper. Um, some of them, not the Seritage Common, but all the other stuff we talked about basically it has like more yield. Uh, or some of the other stuff we talked about has more yield than the market where you're like not getting paid. Whereas with the preferred and with uh, spirit and everything, you're getting these payments and stuff. Um, the one that'll be interesting is, uh, you know, with the Albert's thing, Albertson's thing is if that was to happen, of course they'll have to spin off stores. Um, you know, whenever there's a big merger mm-hmm. between supermarket things, you have to break out some of the stores for regulatory reasons. Mm-hmm. And that will be adjusted in terms of any merger, but that might mean that there's actually a spinoff that would be interesting at some point because it'd be like subsize and it would be kind of interesting. Um, those are the best for companies that buy entire ones that, you know, in the industry, if you can ever get that where companies merge together and they have to sell something off telecom, the same way, the best deals I've ever seen in telecom, the best deals I've ever seen in supermarkets is you buy it to allow them to merge. So, you know, they have to sell to a, a competing chain somewhere and that chain gets a really good deal. This one, they said they're going to, that if it happens, they'll spin it off. So the public would get it. Is your business quality bar as high in these situations or is it purely a pricing, would you say? And then maybe perhaps the best situations are when you get the price and you like the business. Um, 
it, the, the issue here for the continuing value is the durability of it. There's some credit risk stuff, but it's basically the durability of it. So the reason why I would be worried about something like this, as opposed to some other things we talked about, is I'm not so sure about the durability. Uh, that's why t when we talk about Marilyn and Pineapple, Alico, those things where there's no event, I think that, and also when we talked about Q&L Land Association and stuff, the durability of that is much higher. And so what if you get stuck with the asset? That's always the risk. Basically, the downside risk ultimately is the deal doesn't happen, you get stuck with the asset. Are you okay with that? If you're okay with that, this is a good deal. And big spreads are not a problem. Small spreads are not a problem. It's not a lot to worry about that way because you don't have this bad downside. But if you make the mistake, like say in the 2000s or something, there are all these tech mergers and things, right? What if you thought a deal was going to close and it didn't and it was a dot-com? Okay, what would happen to you then? You could lose everything. You can lose everything in Seritage if you, in the common stock if, um, like I said, a 2008 event happens, right? Um, retailers are risky that way because you might depend on other people providing money and stuff for it to be able to keep it going. Um, yeah, so it's just a question of the durability. You know, The business quality thing isn't so important as long as I feel like the price is fine. If I feel like they're getting a good deal on it, then I always think that you should buy it. If I would do the deal, then you should buy it. That, that, I mean, that's, there's all sorts of calculations that we can do in terms of something closing, but the easiest way, the best way for having good long-term returns is just if I was offered the deal on the same terms as they are, would I buy it? Um, and of the ones we mentioned, Spirit's the only one that I would do the deal. So... Albertsons, I think, is not a bad deal if you're stuck in that industry. And if I was running Kroger, I would do the deal. But I wouldn't want to participate in the deal otherwise. But Spirit, I would, yeah. Mm -hmm. We could talk about that here in a second. Lionsgate is going to be spinning off a portion of their business. Um, I don't think any of the S1s or any of that uh, have come out yet because they're still talking about it. But they did release a, a PR on it. Despite the volatile market environment, Lionsgate Entertainment remains on path to separating our stars and studio business. As negotiations progress, we have increased our focus on the possibility of spinning our studio business, creating a number of financial and strategic benefits. In that regard, we are continuing productive negotiations with prospective strategic and financial partners on both sides of our business. So we talk about, you know, movie studios and stuff in the streaming and mm -hmm. movie and entertainment uh, industry often on the podcast. So I just wanted to bring that up as we can follow along and see what's going to happen with this separation. So Lionsgate is a mini major, sort of, to the extent that they exist anymore. Um, it is, uh, you know a second place type studio that did release a few large movies, but doesn't have a lot of smaller movies and stuff. Um, stars. I think people know that was like, a. um, that was just like we talked cool. about Showtime being that was like a cool channel HBO. Yeah. Oh yeah. Growing um, up. That was like, if you, if you had stars, that was like your parents were, were, were rich, man. At least well, where I grew up. Yes. That that's definitely true because stars is not in basic packages that way. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Um, and then there's some people involved with Lionsgate and stuff that I wasn't the biggest fans of and uh, how they ran it and, and stuff. But um, uh, but some of that has changed over time. So um, And the history with stars and stuff has a little John Malone stuff to it. Do you want to look at... The, I mean, the, it'll probably be hard to look at the results, but we could certainly do that. 
if you go to the, the numbers.com, I can show you some of the stuff that Lionsgate makes. Yeah. Um, it's not award-winning stuff usually. No, I know that. You'll, you'll see. Yeah. Didn't Lionsgate do the Saw series? That sounds like the kind of thing that they I mean, they always do just do like kind of raunchy, scary stuff, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, they were involved in some other things where they, I think it's a co-thing. Um we we could the biggest ones I think may surprise you, but let's let's see. So if you go to the studio, let's see, can you go box office like theatrical market or studio or something like that? Okay, so box office, um, this right here. Yeah, one of those should have something that you can find a list of the studios, okay, uh, like market share or something. Okay, yeah. So just you could click on any year, like um, twenty nineteen, you know, pre-COVID, uh, th- twenty nineteen, sure, yeah, pre COVID. Let's see if they give... Do they get, break us down by studio if you scroll down? They should break down by like genre, biggest movies of the year. I think somewhere we'll give studio. No? Let's see. Um, market share for creative type. Market share for... Okay. There you go. Um, okay. Each distributor. Yep. So if we... So do we have Lionsgate listed on the distribution there? We do. Okay. So we can click Lionsgate then. All right. So this is what they released in 2019 and what the ratings were. As you said, they have far more R movies you can see there than is normal for a major studio. John Wick. Studios, you should put up more PG-13. Great, mm. great series. Yeah, so their biggest movie, so it's broken down by biggest movie of the year, right? So their biggest was John Wick. What do they have there for the top few? John Wick, um, Knives Out, Tyler Perry's something, Angel mm. Has Fallen, Scary Stories to Tell. Midway, Five Feet Apart, Rambo, Cold Pursuit, Long Shot. Yeah. I mean, Hellboy. Yeah. So Cold Pursuit is like an, a um, you know Liam Neeson movie, right? Um, and uh, the other ones you people probably recognize. I mean, I, I recognize at least the person involved with it. They recognize who Tyler Perry is. And mm-hmm. stuff, but they mm-hmm. don't recognize the other stuff. So, yeah. Um, so a lot of this stuff is probably watched more on home entertainment. You know, like if you click Cold Pursuit, I bet a lot of people saw that on video. I don't think a lot of people showed up in the um, theaters to watch that one. Because that was at the, I mean, he had probably done 10 like this by then. Uh, You know, 10 of these taken clones in the years in between, right? Mm Because it had been about 10 years since that movie. Um, Yeah, does it say how much it made in theaters? So let's see. Domestic box office, 32 million. Um, okay. DVD sales 2.5 million, domestic Blu-ray sales 3 million, so domestic video yeah, sales 5.5. It probably streams. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff probably streams, and they want it to be on streaming things and stuff. Yeah, so it's that kind of studio. Um, and the budgets are usually a little bit lower, right, than the things we were talking about, where they're not blockbuster type things. Um, the genre. Um. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the franchise in general? Not really. Nothing too positive? Um, Nothing too positive or nothing too negative. I mean, it's been a public company for a while. I've watched it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it's the stuff it's done has made great business sense exactly, but um, it could... I mean, this could change things, I guess that we're talking about when it splits up and stuff, if it's going to have a difference in strategy. 
I don't know. I also think financially, I mean, we could look at that situation, what they have in terms of their balance sheet and all that, but it's better if it's combined with something else in terms of just safety and stuff. I don't know that this is the best thing to do is operate the way that they are. I'd be a little worried about long-term how safe it is. It's not DreamWorks animation. Let's put it that way. These are, it's much spottier about whether these are going to be a hit or miss. There's not as much logic to why this is independent and stuff. You know, like a DreamWorks made a lot of sense. Disney, when it was an animation studio, made a lot of sense to be on its own. It doesn't make much sense to have live action stuff all on your own in a small format like this. Um, let's see. They've got plenty of liabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably associated a lot with the uh, stars because they're paying for rights and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if we looked at Netflix, it would look like it had a lot of liabilities because they promised to pay for a lot of stuff. But this is a situation where, I mean, both businesses are going to look dramatically different afterwards. I mean, so that's, aren't those the type of spinoffs that you'd want to see? Because there's, that's where there's the most potential for a mispricing and you don't exactly know what, you know, it's going to look like and mm-hmm. the pricing could be off and it's a situation where it's like, Hey, yeah. there's no market for it. So you have to value it and perhaps it comes out lower than what you think it's worth. It absolutely could be true. Um, the warnings I would say to people are number one, no one will know how to value this after it's most up and stuff. When you're talking about the studio on its own, certainly. Um, so the, possibilities it gets bought out or something right is like how people see an exit strategy but it's not going to be the sort of thing that reports earnings and things that are meaningful um the way that hollywood does report financial results is very uh different from sort of the underlying reality could be there's a lot of estimation involved in it um i don't think that it works so well on like a pe basis or something so you know, um, there may be analysts that cover it and talk about it, and I think it'll be talked about as a sale thing, just like we talked about with Paramount. People ask why might someone own that stock? Probably because it's a sum of the parts type thing. Certainly, you could have Gabelli talk about this or something. But um, I don't think this is a stock that we're going to hear a lot from the people who uh, listen to the podcast and that we normally read the stuff that they do and whatever, just because it's outside of what they normally kind of cover. Um, entertainment things I think are too hard for them to like it doesn't work on the normal metrics of price to book price to earnings things like that so it doesn't even work on EV to EBITDA like doing that is kind of crazy so um, yeah I I think it'll be talked about as like a possible sale thing or something Um, once it cleared certain things it it would have an issue for the tax free thing probably Um, where's the company incorporated it's a Canadian company actually Grill up the otters los angeles is it incorporated in the united states though vancouver british yeah. columbia yeah yep. but trades on the new york stock exchange yeah mm-hmm. but it files a 10k so it's just a canadian company that you know lists in the u.s it must not have any listing in canada or probably doesn't have a listing in canada just here got it well we can follow that on the pod i just want to talk more about special situations stuff like that that that's going on not just mm-hmm. spinoffs either just other ones as well um other corporate events i think it's just interesting to talk about i mean we don't want to talk a lot about stocks that we own and that we're looking at um on the podcast but i think it'd be good to just talk about more of these things that are going on in the market and things that we may be interested in as well you know 
Yeah. Um, I know there's this, another Canadian company that people like um, that had an activist in it, actually. But um, what is it? Thunderbird Entertainment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, they do uh, content for streaming things, basically. Um, I think they they had one TV show that was pretty big, also Canadian. Um, in fact, they rely entirely on like credits and stuff, government credits and stuff from Canada. But um, uh, I th- was it Kim's Convenience? It's something they had one show that was pretty big. That I could, probably wrong about that. It can't be that. But um, other than that, it's just stuff that like fills up um, programming. You know, it's not like ice road truckers or something, but it's close to that. And um, it's that kind of stuff that you would see all over scrolling through, whether it's um, Netflix or some other streaming thing all the time that way. And um, they do a lot of that. But they um, they also, I have mentioned Rumorance Animation, this company also does production for some stuff on a like cost plus type basis. Like they get reimbursed for it fully so there's not taking a risk that way and unlike what we're talking about with Lionsgate and everything so um it's not my favorite thing neither Lionsgate nor this company is my favorite in terms of their strategies the people involved whatever not that there's anything terrible about Lionsgate Lionsgate looks like what's inside a lot of other big movie studios um but it's kind of subscale on its own thing um so I Thunderbird does I think a lot of um kids things and stuff, but especially like making things specifically for Netflix and everything. Uh, Netflix has more and more of that. And uh, in part, probably because some other ones stopped doing it for them. Right. Netflix had Marvel doing that for them. It had DreamWorks doing it. So some of the big ones probably stopped. Um, So they need companies like that to do it for them. But like they make a whole series for you and you just pay per uh, episode or something. So you just promise them that we'll pay you a million dollars an episode or whatever and you deliver it. And so, um, that's different than getting, um, than making it on spec and then selling it. Right. Um, so it's more like a TV production company. A lot of what they seem to do, I would say, whereas Lionsgate is pretty much a movie studio once they split this off. Um, although it's specifically in the category that I think we haven't talked that much about movies recently, but, um, we've had some interesting things happen there. Some of the stocks have done pretty well and the box office itself looks pretty good. But actually, most estimates that I would have and that sites like the numbers and stuff would have is actually it's been kind of weaker than we would expect because what's happened is the supply has improved a lot. The product being put out has improved. But there's no evidence of, like, improved demand, which we talked about before. So, like, this week, you know, you'll have a $100 million. You'll have almost a $100 million movie. I don't know about um, exactly. But, like, we've had $100 million or more total box office every week for a couple months now and we will for a while but it's just because of um what's coming out right you're going to get to a dead point later in this summer so like the next six weeks or something it's going to be uh something major every week but um after that you're going to get to a dead point for months and then people are going to say the box office is dead and stuff because when you only have the if you look at like you could look at the top movies yeah what do you have there okay so if you look this site used to be great box office mojo was once a great site i still like but it then for some Amazon data bought it. do you yeah it the numbers basically copies what that was I believe Amazon bought IMD and IMDb and then did that with box office mojo or something so um 
so anyway, the the issue is like the smaller movies have done badly, right? So like the numbers.com uses a model. And so this is where sometimes in the articles, and I recommend this site for people to read just because you really just have to read one article a week. You know, they do a couple, but if you just read like the projections, so what they think it's going to do versus what they predicted each week, you'll have the best overview of the box office you can for a really, really easy read. Um, but anyway, so it uses a model, and that model now says the theatrical market is at 60% of pre-COVID. 60%. It's significantly downgraded. And the reason why is the model doesn't say Super Mario Brothers is a big movie, so let's give it a dollar weighting as if it's 90% of the box office, let's weight that as 90% of strength. It looks at every movie and says, okay, every movie is doing on it. The median movie is 60% of what it used to be. And that's probably pretty much true because like, you know, the book club two or whatever, um, which is a movie for, for 70 year old women, you know I mean? A movie with 70 year old women in it, uh, did not do well. You know, um, movies like that. We talked about whether it's, whether it has a romantic content in it or whether it's the wrong age or, or whatever, but it's a supply issue because, uh, super Mario wouldn't have done bigger, Maverick wouldn't have done bigger. Um, Spider-Man No Way um, Home would not have done bigger if it had been outside of this time period. So the biggest, biggest movies are doing the same numbers. Actually, The Little Mermaid probably is the same, right? So, like, Little Mermaid's not going to do as big the remake as Lion King, but it was never as big a movie in the United States. Now, the problem they have is the rest of the world, but I don't think it was ever a huge hit movie in the rest of the world. It's more well-known in the United States. Um, so... The, the thing is with Lionsgate, right? If we looked, all the movies they're making are exactly the movies that no one is going to see in theaters. They're the ones that have dropped off by more than 50%. You can't put out a Liam Neeson movie or... Um, I mean, T Tyler Perry as Medea, I think some people would go to that. Any other thing I don't think you're getting. Um, you know, uh, I don't think Lionsgate did... Do you know who did Power Rangers? Can you type that in in the numbers? That's the kind of thing that if they were going to take a risk, a studio like Lionsgate would do a movie like that. Like it's a property, but it's that size property and it's kind of risky to do it. So who made Power Rangers? Let's see. Who distributed? Anyway, th that's kind of as big as they would. Th they did some other ones too, but this is the category of of movie that is kind of the top side of what we're seeing. The bottom side is the Liam Neeson type stuff we talked about. Certain horror movies. Um, which are doing fine, but these are middle. The danger for a studio like Lionsgate is sometimes some of these are the budgets get a little too much for what it is. Mm. Um, let me put it this way: I doubt Lionsgate ever considered was ever considered a possible for Super Mario, but someone probably thought mm, we could do a Sonic with a Lionsgate. Like yeah. if we really mm -hmm. reach, you mm -hmm. know, that's that's what we can do. Um, because it is a property, it's known, but right, like if you say Sonic, I think people know it's a blue hedgehog and they know a name Sonic, yeah. but they really don't know anything about it. Most people, Super Mario is like a whole thing that that's the biggest thing in um, video games. Right. So anyway, they're, they're middle tier. All their movies are very middle. They're not the smallest. They're not like, um, these, um, art house type ones and stuff and the the specialty distribution that they have for the big studios of the really small stuff 
but the, uh, they're not competing for awards and things, but they're also not um, any of the big budget things. So unfortunately they're right in the area of what people may not go to the movies for anymore, which may be fine if their ideas were a streaming company, right? Like if, if we sell to streamers, cause Sony's doing that. They basically are saying, okay, we're not going to have a streamer. We're going to be the ones who supplies the arms to everyone else in this in this arms race, you know, the independent one. So, you know, you could do that with people buying from Lionsgate because they need it for their stuff that you put on Peacock and Netflix and, and Paramount Plus and Max and whatever. Um, yeah, but it, it's just they're in the toughest part of the – for the theatrical market, it's the toughest part. Mm-hmm. Because their things cost enough that sometimes it's risky, and yet they're not guaranteed. I mean, we've read off the names of them, right? Like, okay, John Wick was okay after the first one, right? Then it became uh, a known quantity that way. But actually doing the original John Wick, I mean, the John Wick script was a spec and stuff. It, It got Keanu Reeves, who's a known quantity. But it, you know... That easily could just be a movie that didn't hit, and then it's not a franchise. It's not, you know, they, they're not some IP that they control a lot of and everything, and it's still in the category of things that can be risky. Because, like, um, you know, honestly, John Wick is not that different than Atomic Blonde or something, which is a movie that's the same kind of thing but not a big success, and John Wick became a big success. So, you know, after the fact, it looks like you know which is the big one and which isn't, but it can be hard to know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at right here about my so, father, but, Lionsgate. But, yeah. it, they're projected to do four point mm-hmm. two million in box office. It's just different. It's a different market, uh, different segment of the market. And I'd have to check, but that probably is not considered a flop for that movie. Mm-hmm. Like they may have hoped that it could do even more, but realistically, people probably thought that that would be a four million dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, that that's the stuff that could easily go more to streaming than, you know, um, than, than the other ones. So it, it's the one that's most in danger for the theatrical stuff, but that doesn't mean that it won't do well for the streaming. And I think if they're going to pitch themselves in a way that like the stock market likes and everything, do you have a chart to see like how the stock's been doing for a while before this? Um, I think the pitch it like I said that the Thunderbird really pushes that idea. Like there's a streaming war out there and we're we're supplying it and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like to investors. That's kind of their pitch to investors and everything. Um yeah, the stock's not done well <laughs> since tw- 2016. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, around 30 bucks. Now we're at just above 10. Mhm. But you know, the the value in the market like for acquiring, you know, other studios acquiring it and everything might also be down two thirds from that far pre COVID. Um, it also had some bigger movies at one time that we didn't get into, but I don't think matter because there, I don't think they'll do more of them, but it, it distributed some stuff that was bigger properties too, but all of them occasionally get one hit that way, you know? Um, yeah, we can certainly look at it and see what happens. Um, But like I said, like with just those movies looking at them, you can tell that it's a hard part to evaluate that way, what exactly you're getting. This is a very sort of typical what a movie studio, what a distributor is. It, you know, um, and then like if you get a Liam Neeson movie or something that works, then you might suddenly see them do five of them in a row. 
because now they have a relationship, right? Now, like, they know that we can get a movie greenlit there fast and everything. And uh, so you'll see, or, you know, Tyler Perry or whatever, you'll see the same producer, the same director, the same actor or whatever repeat because they're saying, yes, let's do this. Uh, it's easiest to do in, like, horror and stuff. But um, they're really having to pick from things that everybody's seeing, right? Like deals that everybody, it's kind of like what I talked about with Amazon and stuff. Everyone gets shown this and then someone says yes to it when you see it appear on one of these things. And um, Lionsgate is just one that sees it all. Like I said, like the John Wick one was a spec script. So that can just, any studio can bid on that that they want to and buy it instead of doing it that way. I mean, it's just a, someone wrote the script and then took it around town to sell it. So, um, uh, you know, so you're basically just bidding against other people to try to make a movie. Um, it's very different than Disney or something, right? Or, or Warner's or, you know, mm-hmm. um, so what do you have there with, what are you looking at with there? Um, so they have, they have the hunger games. Now I don't see yes. the most recent yep. one. So is that like, did that run out or did they lose those rights or? So they did some te- teen ones that way. They also distributed for what else? Do you have the biggest all time or something? Yeah. The hunger games catching fire. So have, okay. Yeah, so they have the whole series there, right? That's their top however many. Correct. Yep. Yep. So the the mo- the mm-hmm. most successful one that they've ever distributed, The Hunger Games Catching Fire, it grossed uh in nominal terms 424 million. Mm-hmm. Big. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, but let's skip that. You know, let, let, in other words, let's skip over uh, Hunger Games and see what's the f- top things after that. No, no. Well, just like they're not going to make Hunger Games every year. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Par- we could, I mean, Knives I can tell out. you Paramount did Top Gun. So, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. So, um, I mean, sometimes ones have. Yeah. So Knives Out. Right. And Knives Out, the second one basically went to streaming. They released it for two weeks in theaters, but it basically went to streaming. So that's what I mean about... And Knives Out is a really successful version of the kind of movie they would want to make. Re- like, this is the good outcome for them, is what you saw with Knives Out. That's exactly the budget, the type of movie, everything about that is, like, exactly what they would want to do, I think. Um, Horror, too. when you hit... Yeah, the first, I mean, you could look at a horror franchise. Most horror franchises have the highest possible return on investment for the first movie. Then they start dropping off after that, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you want to know how to make as much money as possible in movies, like have the highest Mm. payback, you know, it's horror because you can make a movie for $5 million that makes $50 million and people, and like the general public doesn't even know it happened. You know, but but people who love hard alone could make it go to fifty million. I mean, it's not even has to be a huge hit. But you can't make ten times what you put. I mean, Super Mario Brothers kind of did. We went over that. But normally you can't. There's no way to make ten times your money on Avatar, right? You'd have to make three billion dollars or something. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But there can be a, some horror franchise you don't know about, and you're like, wait, they made seven of these, and they each, uh, you know, doubled or tripled their money or whatever. Um, but they tend to drop off. Right, because like Lionsgate, I think follows a pattern, kind of like uh, maybe Dimension did, certainly New Line, um, where they put out 
uh, it like annually. Like if you go to the numbers, right, you could see the soft franchise. You could probably, it, it can, if you go down, I think it lets you pick franchise or something. Um, like, are you into the Saw movie as a movie? I'm on uh, box Where it says like the production. Okay, okay. So box office for Lionsgate. But anyway, if you, you can see that like, um, so what do they have at, under like, uh, so Knives Out. So first, let's just do like, what was the gross? So what do they have in the gross for individual movies that weren't the Hunger Games? What levels are we talking about here? Yeah, and we could, you want to take out John Wick as well? Well, is it the first John? Well, no, I mean, they, they, they've done, what, four of them or something? Yeah, I just, so that's the next one, right after Hunger Games is John Wick. I'm not saying that these don't count. I'm just saying, what else do they put out so people know? So Knives Out, 165 million. La La Land, Huge, 151 yeah. million. Fahrenheit, 9 11, 119 million. Divergent, 150 million. Yeah. Wonder, 132 right. million. Uh, the Expendables, people probably recognize that, 103 million. Right, The Expendables. So the issue there, so this studio's been around a while. The issue there is like Knives Out is the biggest version of that. Ever. Like that's the most you could ever do. That's a breakout of that kind of movie. It would ne that kind of movie would never make that much money. La La Land, same thing, right? Um, I just said it doesn't win things and stuff. I guess La La Land was was nominated for stuff. Um, and uh, you know the same with each of those that we just did. Normally they're much smaller, obviously. But that's what they're hoping for is, like we said, like, you know, one that um, hits big on that. But in terms of what their actual schedule, do they have their release schedule or something? Like, those are their biggest hits. But their actual f normally filling it up with, I'd say, more genre stuff. A lot of it's horror, teen, black. Um, what else do they do? Things that might be underrepresented by uh, major studios, usually. Things that could do maybe a little bit cheaper. Um, well, here, here's the difference, right? We just talked about Little Mermaid that is right around 100 million. Well, this past weekend, they released a movie called About My Father, and it did mm -hmm. 5.3 million. <laughs> yeah, it's just different. Yeah. And, and you're right, though. You look mm -hmm. at the in June through the end of the year, it's horror, thriller, horror. There's some comedy drama, but yeah, it's a lot of horror action. Yeah, the, the tough thing about... The tough thing about that is it's just like someone's taste of whatever they're approving and stuff. So you have to kind of watch it that way. It's like it's culture and all that. But it, like I said, it's basically you're seeing everything that all of them are seeing and you're saying, we'll make this. So it's like book publishing or something like that. Like, you know, we have certain editors or whatever, and this is who they work with and what they do. That's what you're seeing here. So I, it's very typical of this is what studios used to look like a lot more. But they're not what they've looked like in the certainly since Marvel, but I'd say maybe even longer than that. The last twenty years, certainly the last fifteen years or so, it's been a lot of franchises and all that stuff. And you people aren't used to seeing studios that look like this. Um, this is a lot of the business that Buffett and Munger complain about and stuff. Is this kind of studio, this kind of era? Um, so we'll see what it looks like and everything. It certainly could be attractive for someone to buy. I mean, certainly Amazon should buy it, but, you know, we've talked about that before. Um, mm -hmm. There'd be other ones that might be even better to buy, but if something's independent like this, you could buy it. Um, and if you're Amazon, if you're Apple, if you're any of those, you probably want to buy something like this. Just if it was split off so it's completely its own studio, instead of trying to do this yourself. Um mm -hmm. 
that you know they would have saved themselves trouble in the past. I think if they did that, bought an entire studio. Amazon did buy MGM, but it's not. It's sort of a defunct studio. So, uh-huh. well, we will follow it on the podcast. So stay tuned. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Follow me on Twitter to get access to everything that we push out into the world. And if you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me directly at andrew at focuscompounding.com. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. And we will see you next week. Take care.